Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Piketon is a small town in southern Ohio, 90 miles east of Cincinnati, with a population of just over 2,000 people. It's a salt-of-the-earth type of place, nestled in the heart of Appalachia, where families can trace their lineage back generations. Everyone knows everyone. No one is a stranger. And when someone is in need, all they have to do is turn to their neighbor. Bad things happen everywhere, even in small, tight-knit towns. But in April of 2016, something happened that no one had ever seen before, and it shook them to their core. Police in southern Ohio have a dragnet out for a killer who executed eight members of one family. The motive for the killings remains unclear tonight, but the Roden family was clearly targeted. Eight of them killed execution style. It occurred during the night. We have victims who are in bed. The one mom apparently was killed in her bed with the four-day-old right there. They've executed five search warrants, uh, four of those being the crime scenes there on Union Hill Road. I've spoke with the family. It's very evident that they were a target of this horrible crime. A rural town in terror after seven adults and one teenager all shot execution style. The first three homes where the bodies were found are within a couple of miles of one another on a sparsely populated stretch of road, while the eighth body, a man, was found in a house within 30 miles. I do not intend to give out one piece of information that in any way will endanger the prosecution of this case or in any way will slow down what our job is. We're very early in this. We have multiple crime scenes, very horrific crime scene here. So I am not going to rule out the fact that we do not have someone or someones that's out armed and dangerous. Eight members of one family in four separate locations, all murdered execution style at roughly the same time. It was a crime that most people only experienced through movies, but the members of this quiet, hardworking town would soon find themselves thrust into the national spotlight, unwillingly living through a real-life murder mystery and mourning a family who had been a fixture in their community. everybody. Welcome back to Crime Weekly. I'm Stephanie Harlow. And I'm Derek Levasseur. So I hope that you have your notebook ready for this case. It's going to be a multi-parter, deep dive case into the Roden family massacre that happened in uh, April of 2016. This case is is very intensive. There's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of Um, peripheral people involved as well that are going to be pulled in. There's a lot of crime scene information, ballistics, um, blood spatter, DNA. It's a a very, very, very um, intriguing but yet complicated case. And this case has been recommended by so many people for us to do. So many people have requested it. I actually started looking into uh, the Roden family massacre right when we started Crime Weekly. So I think around that that same month that we actually put out our first episode, I was writing down cases that I wanted to do for Crime Weekly in the future. And this was one of them. And I started researching it. And then I realized how 
how intensive it was and how deep it went. And at that point, we weren't doing, you know, eight, nine, ten part series. Uh, we weren't even really doing multi-parts at all because remember we did – I think we did the Watts family case in one episode at that point because we were still doing single cases and single still episodes. Still regret that one, by the way. Yeah. I, oh. I cringe every time I hear I about that case. That was our first episode. That was when we were working under a different set of circumstances where we were trying yeah. to do one episode cases. And we were trying to fulfill the – the, the needs of, of others that we were yeah, working yeah, the, for. Yeah, and, yeah, but now we can framework. do our own thing. And now <laughs> we I said- We just were like, no, we ain't doing that no more. Now we're like, we're just going to go ham and do <laughs> as many parts as possible. But 20 no. part series. <laughs> I know. I know people are like, oh, we don't like the long series, but most people say they do. Most people say they actually do prefer that and they enjoy it. And I prefer it and enjoy it. And this case calls for it. Yeah. So, we, we will mix in a couple short ones here and there. Like, yeah, especially- I'll do a short if, one next. Yeah, we're going to, you know, we'll mix in one. It might be one or two episodes if it warrants it. We're not going to not cover a case because it's short. Not one. That, like two at the least. Oh, <sighs> Stephanie. Because we do Crime Weekly News. That's like our one. Yeah, that's our think? one. Over, overall, we let the cases dictate how long they are. We don't We don't put a, that's why some people are like, how long, how many parts is this going to be? In most cases, we don't know. So it all depends on how much dialogue we get into. Sometimes we go off. But I think that's what's great about podcasting is, you guys have the opportunity to go wh- where you uh, want to go, whatever you enjoy. Some people don't like the long form. We're not necessarily going to cater to that. We're, we have to do what we enjoy doing. Otherwise, we would get burnt out and we wouldn't do yeah, it. So yeah. that's, you know, there's different strokes for different folks. We may not be everyone's cup of tea, but I think for the most part, especially, and I know I said it last episode, especially after the feedback from Dan Markell series, you guys really uh, embrace that one. And I felt like, we got back to the roots of Crime Weekly and really just went for it, and it, it came out. It came out great as far as how we how we produced that episode and how it ultimately ended up. So the way I look at it is, it's like a college intensive course on one case. So when you yeah. leave our our retelling of of each case, you'll pretty much you know, know the case. a lot about it. You'll know this case. You can talk about it, you know, extensively with anybody who who you want to chat about it with, and and there's going to be a lot about the case that you that you know, and and so. You know, we're not here to just retell a story for entertainment purposes. We're here to tell it, tell what happened and hopefully learn something for it and, and pick it apart and, and put the puzzle together in the way that, a, that, honestly, a law enforcement agency would do it. You know, we're trying to look at each piece of evidence. We don't want to just sit here and be like, oh, they were murdered and, and tell you all the gory details and then not really give you any context to to humanize these people. We're here to actually like and, and this is a very sad case because we have eight people in one family just wiped out in one night. Yeah. On the surface, just listening to the trailer, sounds like a collaborative effort by by uh, one or more people. So we'll get into it and we'll see where it goes. So on the morning of April 22nd, 2016, 36-year-old Bobby Joe Manley went about her typical weekday routine. She got up at 6 a.m. She woke up her 15-year-old daughter for school, got the daughter on the bus by 7 a.m., and then she headed over to the Union Hill Road home of her brother-in-law, Christopher Roden Sr., to feed his dogs and chickens. Now, Christopher Roden had been married to Bobby's sister, Dana, and although Dana and Chris had gotten a divorce in 2007, they shared three children together, and they were all still very close. 
When Bobby Joe arrived, she was, you know, on autopilot, like we all are when we do something that's become a habit. And she left her cell phone charging in her car as she approached the front door of the trailer. Bobby Joe went for the door handle, but she was surprised when she found it locked. Chris Sr. was usually up and about by then. He usually unlocked the door for her because he knew she was coming. But it was locked this morning. And she also found it odd that Rodin's two dogs were outside on the porch because they were usually inside with their owner. Bobby Joe let herself into the trailer with the key that Chris Sr. had given her, and she walked into something she never expected. A trail of blood in the front room led her to a back bedroom where she found the bodies of 40-year-old Christopher Rodin Sr. and his cousin, 37-year-old Gary Rodin. There was blood everywhere. In a panic, Bobby Joe fled the trailer and retrieved her cell phone, calling 911 at 7.49 a.m. I think her brother was dead. What's his name? So if you heard in that clip, Bobby Joe, she's very clearly distressed. She's very, very upset. And she says, you know, I think I think that there's there's some dead men here. My brother in law is dead. And it looks like somebody, you know, beat the hell out of them, basically. So on the same property, within walking distance, Chris Roden's 20-year-old son, Frankie Roden, lived in a trailer with his two children and his fiancée, Hannah Gilly. And while Bobby Joe waited for the police to arrive, she went over to wake Frankie up to let him know what had happened. When she knocked on the trailer door, it was not Frankie who answered. It was his three-year-old son, Brentley, who told Bobby Joe that his daddy was playing zombie in the bedroom. Bobby Joe rushed into the bedroom to find another horrific scene. Frankie and his 20-year-old fiance Hannah were in bed. They had both been shot to death, and the bed they were laying in was soaked in blood. Frankie was lying on his back, but Hannah was curled up on her right side, facing her silent but thankfully still alive six-month-old son, Ruger. According to Bobby Joe, the baby was soaked in the blood of his parents and he was stroking the chest of his dead father. And Bobby Joe also believed, based on the position that Hannah Gilly was lying in, she had been nursing her son and then fallen asleep while nursing him, and she was killed in that position. Not long after this, Bobby Joe's brother, James Manley, went a bit down the road to the trailer of his sister, and there he found 37-year-old Dana Roden dead, along with her two children, 19-year-old Hannah Mae Roden and 16-year-old Christopher Roden Jr. So Bobby Joe and James and Dana are all siblings. Bobby Joe was Chris Roden Sr.'s sister-in-law. Chris Roden Sr. was married to Dana, who's Bobby Joe and James's sister. So at that time, they were living on the same road. Chris Roden Sr. and Dana Roden living on the same road. Chris Roden Sr. lived with his cousin Gary, and Dana lived with her and Chris Roden Sr.'s two kids, Hannah May and Chris Jr. And then their other son, Frankie, or Clarence is his first name. He goes by Frankie, his middle name. He was in a trailer on his father's property where he lived with his fiance Hannah. It's confusing because Frankie's sister's name is Hannah. His fiance's name is Hannah. He lived there with his fiance Hannah and their two sons, if that helps kind of explain the whole situation. The trailer was covered in blood, but the most shocking detail of this crime scene was the fact that Next to Hannah May in bed 
was her daughter, Kylie, who she had just given birth to four days prior. Hannah was the mother to another child, a three-year-old named Sophia, but luckily the toddler was with her father that day. As rumors of these horrific crime scenes began to make their way around town, members of the Roden family gathered at a nearby church so they could be together if any news or updates came in. And one of these people at the church, one of these family members, was a man named Donald Stone. So hours later, in another trailer, a 10-minute drive from the Union Hill Road location, another 911 call came in at 1.26 p.m. This was Donald Stone because once he'd heard what was going on in Union Hill Road, he went to check on his cousin, Kenneth Roden. And Donald found Kenneth dead as well, shot once through the eye with $1,000 scattered around him. Uh, it's all this stuff that's on the news. Uh, my, I just found, just found my cousin with a gunshot wound. Okay, so now that we've kind of talked about all eight of the victims, where they were found, etc., what are you thinking so far? Okay, so qualifier here. We were just talking about this as we're editing this episode, and I was I asked you, is this case solved? Because I, I didn't know or not. I, 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 I've heard of the case. But I know people always get up in an uproar when I say I haven't, like, investigated or researched a case that I have nothing to do with. But spoiler alert, I haven't. So my initial thought on the surface is definitely connected. I know, shocker, light bulb, Sherlock Holmes, here I come. Like, all of these deaths are connected. All these deaths are connected. Yes. Appears to be done by someone, I don't want to say professional, but someone who has an experience with killing animals or something along that lines. This was well executed, not taking in consideration the actual executions of these individuals. Someone who cleaned up after themselves in the sense where anyone who could directly link them to the crimes was was executed. That brings me back to the two teenagers who I don't think necessarily are going to be involved with whatever we end up undercover, you know, finding out here, but they're witnesses. So they got to go too. Um, This person still, or people who are involved, although this may be personal, there's still some level of consciousness there where all the children under a certain age were were left Left alone. They were were spared. Um, So there's some level of emotional connection to that person where they're not a complete sociopath and they're just going through this whole thing, just killing anyone and everyone that they can find for the gratification of it. It appears to be deliberate, it appears to be directed, and it may be tied to one specific person, but I don't think you go off and kill an entire family if it's just a vendetta. I don't think so. I mean, it seems like this was a thought-out, premeditated plan, and I know you haven't got into the specifics of the cause or manner of deaths for anyone other than Kenneth, but... I would assume that we're going to find that they were all killed in a similar manner, which would lead us to believe that one or maybe a couple people were involved, but they're all connected in some way, shape or form. That's all I'll say for now. I don't really have a ton here, but crazy on the surface. When you say the two teenagers, you don't believe that that they were involved. They were just kind of collateral damage. You mean 16-year-old Chris Jr. and 19-year-old Hannah, his sister, right? Yes. Now, 19 years old, because I was... Again, we're cleaning this episode up, but I actually had to pause with Stephanie to write all these names down, make sure I got all the the connections. I say that where they they may not be indirectly involved, but also 16 years old. 
Not, I mean, old enough to drive a car, 19 years old, definitely old enough to be involved in something, whether it's criminal in nature. I will say this without knowing anything about this case. In these situations, in my experience, and it's limited having something like this, of this magnitude, there's usually a criminal element to it, right? And it could be a, a competitor. It could be someone that was crossed during a business deal. Could be a lot of things. So I won't go too far down that trail, but it sounds on the surface like there may be something here that's more, th there's more than just the fact that these people were executed for no other reason than they were, someone didn't like them. There's mm -hmm. more to the, there's definitely more to the story. Definitely, uh, there, there definitely is. Let's take our first break and we'll be right back. Factors delicious, ready to eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You're going to have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan, and veggie, and more. And there's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. I love Factor because meal planning's never been something I've been good at sustainably. I'll do it for a couple weeks and then I get bored. But with Factor, everything is ready for you and there's a lot of variety, which keeps you from getting bored. They're doing it for you so you don't have to exert that energy and it's really, really delicious too. You can fuel up with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are, whenever you want. They have snacks, smoothies, and more so you can discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast, midday bites, and more. And uh, Factor's less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. So if you sign up, you're going to save. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. And it's really flexible for your schedule. So you can get as much or as little as you need, choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And there's no prep and no mess because Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. You're not going to have a bunch of dishes to do. You're not going to have to wipe off any counters. Super, super easy. So we love Factor. We think you should check them out, and Derek's going to tell you how. Yeah, specifically, I think you should check out the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites because they're phenomenal. Just put, just put, just put them out there. It's phenomenal. Definitely have to try them. Uh, I've been using Factor for years. Huge fan of them. And you can try them too right now. Head on over to factormeals.com slash crimeweekly50 and use our code Crime Weekly 50 to get 50% off. That's code Crime Weekly 50 at factormeals.com slash Crime Weekly 50 to get 50% off. Local police set up roadblocks at the intersection of Union Hill Road and Route 32 at the perimeter of three of the crime scenes, and they began processing the trailers and looking for evidence. During a press conference on April 24th, 2016, then-Attorney General Mike DeWine, who I believe is the governor of... Ohio at this point. I believe Mike DeWine has now been promoted to governor, but at that time he was the AG. And he announced that they didn't believe this had been a murder-suicide of any kind, but they did believe the killings had been pre-planned, saying, quote, it was a sophisticated operation, and those who carried it out were trying to do everything they could do to hinder the investigation and prosecution, end quote. 
DeWine also said that investigators had received more than 100 tips, conducted more than 60 interviews, and collected 18 pieces of evidence through the execution of five separate search warrants. Pike County Sheriff Charles Reeder also spoke during this press conference, saying the crime scenes had been thoroughly searched, but they were still secured in case law enforcement needed to return. Reeder told the gathered journalist that this would probably be the largest investigation in Pike County history, and both he and DeWine asked the public for patience. No one was going to get answers anytime soon. It was going to take a lot of time and careful work. I want everybody to be patient, but understand that we are working around the clock, 24 hours a day, working on every lead that comes in, all the tips, conducting the interviews. We will provide information as as we can, but this is going to be a very lengthy process. This is not your case where someone's got mad at somebody else, they've shot them, there's a witness, two witnesses. It is very, very, very different type case. So let me also say that while we we will continue to provide you with information in regard to what we are doing, what we are not going to be able to do is to provide you results. We have to keep our eye on the goal. And the goal is to do everything within our power in this investigation to find these people or this person who has done this. We will not be telegraphing or telling the bad guys everything that that we know. As the sheriff indicated, I think this is going could very well, well be a lengthy investigation. Just to kind of double back for a second, Pike, then you said small town, by the way, too. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we talking about as far as the capacity of this police department? I'm assuming it's not vast. Yeah, I was literally just going to say that because local Pike County law enforcement, they had the best intentions of getting to the bottom of what had happened to the eight members of the Rodin family. But they were a small department, so they called in the help of other law enforcement agencies, including the Bureau of Criminal Investigations or the BCI, which is how we will refer to it in this video. And the BCI serves as Ohio's crime lab and criminal records keeper. But special agents with the BCI also help local police and sheriff's departments around the state with felony level cases of homicide, financial crimes and corruption. So if if the the police department, the local police department, in this case, the the Pike County Sheriff's Department, if they're like, yeah, we we have resources, but not for this. Right. This had never right. happened. This is a population of 2000 people. 2, this is, people, does not. Okay. Yeah. This does not happen in these small towns. You know, once again, everyone knows everyone. And we're going to see that illustrated multiple times throughout the series. Everyone knows everyone. They're all connected in some way, whether it's by blood, whether it's by um, you grew up together. So you're like siblings, whether it's because your mom knows their mom. And so you guys knew each other through that way. Everyone knows everyone. So they do not deal with stuff like this. So they brought in the BCI. The reason I, I, I asked that question is because although Piketon may not have the resources or the experience to process a crime scene like this, or even do all the interviews that are going to need to be conducted in a, in a, with how expansive this investigation is going to be the local law enforcement officers. I'm going, I could be completely wrong here. We're going to find out it's not, but I, I feel like in this type of case, based on the, the, the topography and, and how you laid out where the trailers were, whoever's involved with this has to be, have a familiarity with the area. I'm not going to go as far as yet in saying they're locals, 
But I won't be surprised if you tell me that the people involved with this are locals because of the where it took place and because of what you just said, where everyone knows everyone, the Roden family, if there was any issues going on, if they were involved in any criminal activity, locals are going to know. If they were having any type of altercation or dispute with a with other individuals from that community, they're going to know. You know what I mean? Like they're going to be able to bring up some potential motives very fast. The FBI or the Bureau of Criminal Investigations, anybody from outside that community would not have access to that information. More importantly, they don't have the trust of that local community to obtain any details they need to try to find potential suspects. So just want to put that out there. Although Pike County may, again, not have the best resources, they are going to be critical in this case, I would imagine. They were critical in this case. Absolutely. And I mean, it it just is, it doesn't even come down to like more skill or more knowledge. It comes down to more manpower, more right, hands just on deck. covering everything, yep. Yeah, and they, they eventually did have to like move because the crime scenes were so far apart. They had to take all the trailers and move them off the property and put them in like this warehouse so that they could, and, and the, the sheriff got like a lot of shit for it. You know, he was like, I know people are not going to like this decision, but just from a, a functional point of view, like we have to process these scenes and we have to continue looking through them and we have to continue returning to them for the simple fact of like, what's the inside look like? How could this have happened? And we That's can't brilliant, just keep, by the way. I, yeah. I, imagine that having multiple crime scenes that you can stick under one roof. Yeah, because they processed them. them like for forensics where they were, yeah. right? So they, they did that. Yeah. But once that's done, now you need to he, – he felt that he needed to move them to this warehouse so that they could continue returning to these trailers and sort of re like reenact or recreate what had happened based on the locations of things. And, that's great. And I think it was smart. But people didn't like it. They thought it was going to mess with evidence and things like that. And, I mean, who knows? But Dr. Henry Lee told me this. Every scene is contaminated the minute you arrive. Every scene. And so it's one of those things you want to minimize that contamination uh, while obtaining whatever evidence you're trying to obtain. So I'm sure they did a cursory search of the of the surrounding area with the with the trailers and did a perimeter of everything and made sure that while these suspects or suspect were fleeing the area, um, they didn't drop anything or leave any type of DNA behind in the outer skirts of the trailers. But mm-hmm. once you do all that. You yeah, bring exactly. the trailers and you inter- you in- you ensure that the integrity of the whatever evidence you do find is intact. If that's a secured warehouse or facility, you could go back time after time again and the defense can't say, well, you know, how do we know someone didn't break in or go inside that trailer while so you were gone? So that's kind of the problem. It wasn't secured. Oh, okay. I'm getting ahead of myself. The whole time. Okay. You know, and, and I think they probably had like alarms and stuff, but- I remember it they didn't interview. have like a law enforcement officer there. Around they did the not clock. have a physical person there uh, around the clock. And he was like, we, he was like, we just, we can't like, we can't, they've been there for months. We do, we can't have somebody be there um, night and day. But I mean, once again, all the main evidence was done at the scene has already been collected, right? The shell yeah. casings, they've taken pictures of everything. So at that point is you took pictures of everything. You collected everything. You did everything properly initially. So now I just feel like having the trailers there was so that they could get a lay of the land and return to them and kind of just check things out if they had questions. It's better than, I don't know, like destroying the crime scene like they did at uh, Idaho State University, right? Yeah. I mean, it sucks. I'm saying, as you were saying it, like it sucks that they didn't have someone there all the whole time. But logistically, I can see how, again, if it's a secured facility where they have locks and stuff on the door and 
I don't know. I, I get I get it. I can see both sides of the argument, but there does come a practical standpoint where you can't have around the clock coverage because because it gets very it gets very expensive. Yeah, and I mean, like once again, this is a small department, so they don't have a ton of resources. Now, here's a kind of little twist to the case because as the police and BCI are processing these crime scenes within just a few days, they discovered. Uh, three marijuana grow operation locations found at two of the four crime scenes. So they found a shed behind Kenneth Roden's trailer, and he used the shed to grow plants in. And then on Chris Roden Sr.'s land, plants were found in a big barn on his property as well as in the attic of his home. And I think the overall total of number of plants they found was like 200, which I think came out, if they sold it, would be like over $400,000 in profit. Now, this initially led the public and even law enforcement to speculate on whether or not these murders had been drug-related. Piketon may have been a small, tight-knit community, but it was also one of the most economically distressed areas in Ohio. And with jobs sometimes hard to come by, residents would turn to illicit activities to support their families. Well, when you think about drug trafficking, you don't like immediately think about you know, Ohio. It doesn't immediately come to your mind. But it is an agricultural area, and marijuana is a cash crop in many places in Ohio. There were other drugs coming in, meth, cocaine, pharmaceuticals. But Pike County happened to be very close to U.S. Route 23. Uh, I think they call it the Heroin Highway. It's a known drug trafficking roadway that runs from Florida to Michigan. And it passes through many large-scale drug markets like Cleveland, Chicago, Detroit, St. Louis, and Pittsburgh. So Dan Tierney, a spokesperson for the attorney general's office, told CNN that in 2016, the hilly and wooded area of southeast Ohio between Interstate 23 and Interstate 70 was known as a good hiding spot for drug activity for local growers and drug cartels alike. So real quickly, and I know I alluded to this when you were like, hey, Derek, what are your initial thoughts? So this is this is without even knowing this. Right. But here's my issue. And I, I, the way, the picture you're painting right now, I think some people might be listening or watching going, oh, well, here we go. That's the connection. The You know, they came in and said, we don't want you selling in this area. And they took out their competitor. Right. But to be honest with you, relatively speaking, in comparison to what you're dealing with out there, 200 plants, that's a speck on a page. That's nothing. Yes, exactly. So I will say, even though you're laying out this picture of how this could be connected from a narcotics detective perspective, I will tell you 200 plants doesn't move the needle and no, most likely the cartel's not, that's a blip on a radar. They're not going to care about that. So I got to, if there's like a bigger distribution thing that you're going to tell me about down the road, maybe, but $400,000 may sound like a lot of money. It's, it's really not. And relatively speaking from a, from a drug perspective. Okay, well, the thing is, like, I think that when they were looking at what happened, the way that these eight people were shot, kind of like in an orchestrated fashion, right? Right. It looks like this is like a, a contracted like thing, a hit. like yeah, a yeah, professional, yeah. like somebody who kills people professionally, right? Right. You know, they've done and, this and, once or twice. That's what I was saying right. earlier. Like they've they've been around the block. And given that. Um, this is a small town. Everyone knows everyone. Things like this don't happen. Like you might have bar fights. You might even have someone killing someone, one person over something, but you're not going to see this kind of thing. Yes, I believe it was easy for people at that time to say, oh, this could have been, you know, Mexican cartels. In fact, they 
They found a Mexican grow operation just a few miles away from the Rodin family crime scenes, at least the ones on um, Union Hill Road. And given the nature of the crimes, the money located on and around Kenneth Rodin's body, like that money being sprinkled there kind of made it seem like it was financially motivated. So it did look like this might have been a contracted hit carried out by people who knew what they were doing. However, there were a few things about the murders that didn't add up when it came to cartel-style killings. It was true that any cartel presence in the area might have viewed the rodents' grow operation as a threat to their business, but the fact that three children had been found unharmed and alive at the scenes made investigators really doubt this cartel angle because typically in cartel killings like this, they don't leave anybody they alive. Take not out the children, everyone. not the children, not the animals. Not, and and there was three dogs, two at um, Chris Roden Sr.'s property and one at Kenneth's property didn't that were left alive and outside and they didn't kill those dogs. And you'd yeah. think Mexican cartels, they're coming up just so the dog doesn't bark, doesn't potentially attack. They're going to take them out. Now, it Well, think about why like, they do that, Stephanie. Right? So the dog it, doesn't bark or attack. Well, no, think about why the cartels kill everyone, including the children. It's not necessarily... Well, it is to, to obviously tell, you know, get rid of their competition. Send a but message. It's to send a message. Yeah, it's like a we deterrent. don't care. We'll take everything from so, you. So yeah. listen, if you want to play games, you may not care about your life if you get caught by us, but you probably care about the people in your life. And if we find out you're crossing us or you're taking away from our business, we will kill you and your families. We don't care who they are, how young they are we will take out everybody connected to your lineage so it it deters people from stepping on their on their toes knowing that hey if i screw up everyone i know and love and care about is gone so that's why they do that they'll kill babies they don't care to let everyone know cross us and your your generational uh there will be generational ramifications for your actions yes and and in general i mean there's no personal tie. No, there's no right? emotion to it. Yeah, there's no emotion to it. They don't right. know these people. They don't Means care about these end. babies. Yeah. And the fact that the dogs were left alive made people think, well, did these dogs recognize who was walking up to these crime scenes? Or did the people walking up to the crime scenes, people or person, know that this dog wasn't going to attack because they'd had interactions with this dog before? So that kind of made people, I guess, sit on the fence. Like the way it was done seemed very much like something the cartel would do. But then there was just these little nuances that w wouldn't allow law enforcement to buy it 100 percent. Yeah, I think more so maybe not cartel, maybe another local drug dealer or as we were saying earlier, there's some type of emotional connection to this mm -hmm. where the rodents we're going to find out have something going on in their lives that they're all involved in that that someone clearly didn't like. And honestly, in that area, it seemed like everybody kind of was growing weed or selling drugs or doing something like that. And there was lots of people that were interviewed in these early days when they found these grow operations. And these people were like people who lived in Piketon. And they said, yeah, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. You know, lots of people have these little side businesses to make some extra money. And it is you know, kind of well known that in the Appalachian Mountain areas, drugs are rampant. So it wasn't as if the rodents were alone 
in what they were doing. And none of them had ever been in any real trouble or caused issues for law enforcement in the past. Sheriff Reeder said, quote, I have never been involved with that family in a criminal nature, and I've been in law enforcement locally for 20 years. End quote. In fact, the family were very well loved by their community. They were known to be friendly and giving, always willing to lend a hand or help someone in need, even though they themselves were not always doing well financially. A Piketon resident, Kendra Jordan, said, quote, everyone knows that family. They're involved in everything and they're at every event that's going on in town. Just about see them anywhere you went. End quote. Yeah. So this is this is great to know. This is obviously great to know. And again, it goes back to talking about local officials being able to verify this type of information because they've had personal interactions with them. And so on the surface here, obviously, there's maybe something we don't know about yet. But knowing that the Roden family in general, not really known for their criminal activities, not known to get involved with bad people. That's interesting to me. Because the weed thing doesn't bother me, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. It really doesn't. I've, I've if gone If it was like into cocaine or something, you might have been more like- Cocaine, you know, heroin, yeah. methamphetamine, any of those. And also the plants themselves. Yeah, clearly they were selling it. Let's be honest. 200 plants, that's more than personal use. Or growing right? it to sell. Right. right. They were yeah. growing it to sell it, right? And so there's clearly some type of distribution element to it, but it doesn't sound like these guys were hardened criminals- that were some type of huge drug operation that was just under the noses of law enforcement and they didn't know it. That's at least what I'm picking up here. 2,000 people, like you said earlier, if they were doing something, more than likely law enforcement would have known about it. Yeah, and some members of their family seemed to know that they were doing it while others, because there's there's a lot of extended rodent family in this area, right? That's that's an, that's another thing. Like they have lots of, you've got Dana's uh, siblings and her father who live in the area. You've got a bunch of uh, rodent cousins and half brothers and half sisters and stuff living there. So there's a lot of people who are related to the rodent victims in some way. And some of them are like, no, we had absolutely no idea that they were doing that. And some of the family members knew. So it didn't seem like they were trying to hide it. It was just kind of like if you happen to find out about it or if you happen to see it or know about it, they wouldn't hide it. But they weren't also like spreading it around to everybody. But once again, many people in this town and in this area were doing the same thing. So why would the rodents be isolated and kind of targeted for doing something that many others were doing? Unless it's a competitive thing. But that just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. 200 plants. I don't know. Not... We'll see. Maybe the, you're, you're, we're first episode in here halfway through the script. It's, it's so much. Yeah, they, so I'm much. assuming this isn't the the meat and potatoes of it. There's probably a lot more to the story. There's a lot more to the story. Okay. But before we continue on, let's take a quick break. Most of you have probably heard us sing the praises of pros and their truly custom made-to-order hair care. Switching to a custom routine from pros was one of the best things I've done for my hair, and the results I'm seeing just keep getting better. So we've talked about this before. You guys know I love pros. It really has made a difference. It's made a difference as far as uh, reliability, you know, what I'm going to expect each day, which for somebody like me, I'm very busy. I have a lot going on. I have ADHD. I need to know what to expect. So in the past, 
past, sometimes my hair would look good and sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes I'd have a good hair day. Sometimes I would have a bad hair day. And it would always kind of interrupt what I was planning to do that day. If I was going to record a video and my hair just was not cooperating, I would have to like put it in a bun or a braid or something. And I just didn't feel good about it. But with pros, my hair has been shinier, softer, smoother, stronger, but more manageable as well. So I love their curl cream when I want to wear my hair curly and not do a bunch of styling to it. I love their uh, hair oil when I straighten my hair. Uh, it's a perfect finisher for it. It leaves it soft, smooth, shiny. If you're looking at me right now on YouTube, you can probably see that my hair is incredibly shiny and glossy right now, and I love it. So Pros knows that there's more to you than just your hair type. They've given over 1 million consultations with their in-depth hair quiz. That's how I got started. It's exactly how you're going to get started. And they may ask you some questions that surprise you, and you're like, why do you need to know this? They may ask you what your zip code is, what your eating habits are like, um, your damage level, even your exercise, things like that. But that is because all of these things do affect how your hair is going to look, feel, and behave. And by analyzing over 85 personal factors, Pros handpicks clean, sustainably sourced ingredients that get you closer to your hair goals with every wash. One of my favorite Pros features is their review and refine tool. This is going to let me tweak my formula for any reason in case I change up my address, my hair color, even my diet. I like to do this sometimes, keep my hair guessing and uh, just switch the formula up a little bit so that my hair is going to never really know what's coming for it. And as a carbon neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their ingredients ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral. And the best part of all is if you're not 100% positive that Pros is the best hair care you've had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. So they're going to give you an opportunity to try this stuff out for yourself and see if you want to continue with it. And if it just doesn't work for you at all, you can send it back. They'll refund you. They're not going to ask any questions. It's super easy. I've never had to do that because Pros has always worked for me. But if you want to check out Pros for yourself, Derek's going to tell you how right now. Custom made-to-order hair care from Pros has your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 50% off your first subscription order today, plus 15% off and free shipping every subscription order after that. Just go to pros.com slash crimeweekly. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash crimeweekly for your free in-depth hair consultation and 50% off your first subscription order. So Dana Manley was 16 and a student when she married 19-year-old Christopher Roden on October 27, 1994. Their first son, Clarence Frankie Roden, was born in August of 1995. Their daughter, Hannah Mae Roden, was born in April of 1997. And two years later, Christopher Roden Jr. was born in November of 1999. In 2007, Chris Sr. and Dana got divorced, but they shared custody of their three children and they remained close, basically continuing to operate as a family. Chris Sr. worked as a laborer, but he also worked seasonally at Great Bear Lake Family Resort in Lucasville for 20 years, where the owner, Robin Waddle, said that Chris Sr. had been hired for different projects, but they would continue to bring him back because he was reliable and efficient. And both of Chris Sr.'s sons, Frankie and Chris Jr., would also work on and off at this same resort. Chris Sr.'s oldest son, Frankie, was a maintenance worker there, and he also worked at McCoy Lumber. He'd graduated from Piketon 
Washington High School in 2012, and he'd studied welding at the Pike County Career Tech Center. When he wasn't working, Frankie loved doing country boy things, fishing, hunting, four-wheeling, demolition derbies, and family was very important to him. Frankie was father to three-year-old Brentley Roden, the product of a previous relationship with a local woman named Chelsea Robinson. In December of 2014, Frankie began dating Hannah Hazel Gilly, and in October of 2015, the couple were engaged to be married and welcoming their son, Ruger Lee Roden, into the world. In high school, Hannah was in 4-H and on the homecoming court, and she was perfect for Frankie because she also loved doing the same country boy things that he liked to do, four-wheeling, mudding, and hanging out with friends and family. She had big plans of attending college, getting a business degree, and opening a daycare. But now she's buried in Hackworth Hill Cemetery in Otway, Ohio. Frankie's baby brother, Chris Jr., was he was the baby of the family, and he was super close to his mother, Dana. He was a freshman at Piketon High School, and he worked summers at Big Bear Lake Family Resort. Chris Jr. may have had big blue eyes and a baby face, but according to the school superintendent, the 16-year-old was a defender and protector of others. The superintendent, Todd Burkett, said, quote, he was the first one that if he thought someone wasn't being treated fairly or felt like someone wasn't being treated appropriately, he would speak up, end quote. Chris Jr. was also very close with his sister, Hannah May, who was three years older than him. They both lived together with their mother, Dana, and they would often post pictures together on social media. Hannah, who I'm going to try to refer to her as Hannah May so we don't confuse her with Frankie's fiance, Hannah Gilly. So Hannah May was described as being outgoing. She was a spunky teenager. She knew who she was. She knew she was extra. She didn't care. And no one had ever seen her cry. No one had ever seen her scared or depressed. She was just a bundle of energy and light, and she grew up wanting to be a nurse's aide like her mother, Dana. Now, many people in Pike County could not comprehend what happened. If this wasn't the work of some cold-blooded cartel members, who could have done this to the Roden family? No one was perfect, but the Rodens were well-liked and mostly unproblematic people. So let's turn to the crime scenes and see what investigators were facing when they first took up this case. There were three crime scenes spread out over the property of the Roden family on Union Hill Road and one more at the trailer of Kenneth Roden on West Fork Road. Surveillance cameras at these locations had either been destroyed or removed, and animals had been found at two of these locations. Chris Roden Sr.'s pit bull Chance and boxer Paisley were found alive on his front porch, and a pit terrier mix named Brownie was outside of Kenneth's trailer. Throughout all of the crime scenes, 32 bullets had been fired. And let's start with crime scene number one, the trailer of Christopher Roden Sr., who lived with his cousin and his best friend, Gary Roden. Upon arriving at the trailer, investigators noted multiple bullet holes on the outside of the trailer and inside the trail of blood that Bobby Joe Manley had spotted was evident immediately. Unlike the other victims, Chris Sr. and Gary appeared to have been awake and dressed when they were attacked, and it looked like they were near the door of the trailer. But then their bodies, after they were shot, had been dragged from the front of the trailer to the back bedroom where they were found. Deputy Coroner Karen Lumen performed autopsies on all eight of the Roden victims, but she did seven of them over the weekend of April 23rd and 24th. And then she performed Chris Sr.'s autopsy separately on April 25th. Now, Lumen said she did this because she knew that Chris Sr.'s autopsy was going to take a while since he'd been shot so many times, and it was going to take her a lot of time and work locating all of the bullets. Authorities believe that Chris Sr. and his cousin Gary were the first victims to be attacked, and they had put their time of death at around 11 p.m. on Thursday, April 21st. 
Chris Sr. had been shot at close range, and he was shot six times in the face, once in the chest, once in the stomach, and once in the right forearm. Lumen would later testify that the pattern of wounds indicated Rodin was likely on the floor of his trailer unmoving when he was shot in the face. And she said that one shot to Chris Sr.'s face lodged in his spine and caused an internal decapitation. It's believed that the first shot that Chris Sr. suffered from was only one to three inches away from his face, so at very, very close range. Lumen said, quote, his forearm was so destroyed and lacerated that the skin was peeled back. You could see muscles. You could see the fractured pieces of bone in there. There was so much trauma there, you couldn't see an entrance or exit wound. His arm was barely hanging onto the end of his elbow, end quote. Gary Roden had been shot four times in the face. So next, we're moving on to crime scene number two. This is the trailer of Frankie Roden and Hannah Gilly, who had been in bed and asleep with their six-month-old son when they were murdered. Frankie had been shot twice in the head, and Hannah had been shot five times in the head. Moving on to crime scene number three, this was the trailer of Dana Roden. She and her two children, Chris Jr. and Hannah, were all in bed when they were attacked. In separate beds, obviously. Dana Roden was shot four times in the head. Her 16-year-old son was also shot four times in the head. And Hannah sustained two bullet wounds to the head. Crime scene number four was the trailer of Kenneth Roden. And as we already talked about, he had been shot just once through his right eye. I'm more and more leaning towards multiple people being involved based on the second crime scene, not necessarily the first um, but definitely because you have multiple people in different bedrooms who were all executed, uh, presumably before they got out of bed. And I think it's pretty safe to say that if you're sleeping and you hear gunshots in the other room, it's going to wake you up. At least you're going to be sitting up or, or out of bed heading towards whatever it is to see what's going on. So the fact that they were all still in bed and it appears to be sleeping, it's suggestive that this was a coordinated effort, maybe multiple shooters. I'll be more interested when we get into ballistics to figure out if it's multiple guns or the same gun. That will obviously answer a question. So I can tell you, I can give you kind of like a little um, spoiler alert to that because the ballistics are very extensive, actually. And, and they did a lot of they did a lot of great police work, not only with the ballistics, but with um, boot prints that were found in at crime scene number one, which was Chris Roden Sr.'s trailer. Really interesting stuff that you're going to like. So I really wanted to give us time to talk about that. And we're going to talk about it next time. But they did find more than one type of ammunition. And so, yes, there were two, at least, well, I don't want to get too far into it, but at least two different least two weapons shooters. used. So at least two shooters, even though initially the police were saying, we believe this was only one person. But then they came out later and they were like, okay, we think that there was more than one person here. So, and that's multiple reasons because the the boot prints that they found at Chris Roden Sr.'s trailer in the blood, there was so much blood um, in this trailer. There was so much blood at all of these crime scenes that the, the perpetrators had walked through the blood and left boot prints. But they were two different sizes. One size boot was, and it was the exact same boot, exact same tread. And the tread was from a shoe that had just recently been purchased. So they can tell that this was not a boot or a shoe that had been, you know, walked around in for months or years, newly purchased due to the tread. And one of the treads was a 10 and a half and one was an 11, but the exact same tread which may have done been done purposely to confuse investigators by wearing the same shoes. But at the end of the day, 
you're a half size off. So you have a 10 and a half and then an 11. So you either have a, a perpetrator who's wearing two different size shoes or you have more than one shooter. Well, they could tell that too if it's a left and right. Yeah, if it was a left so and right, yeah. We, we'll, um, I'll save it to get into that because that's fascinating to me. But yeah. there's the way we can talk about the ways that they would identify that and how they would be able to tell um, what you're looking for to tell whether the boot is worn, things like that. There's all these different variables that come into that. But um, so, yeah, at this point, two shooters, and I'll even go as far as saying this doesn't sound like a professional to me. This doesn't sound like a professional hit overall because the manner in which they're shot, not understanding that it doesn't take four bullets to the head to kill someone. It seems and personal, you, right? Yeah. If you, and if Especially with someone Chris Sr., like yeah. the way he was shot, like yep. internally decapitated, his elbows, like holding his arm on by a thread. And it seemed that that was the first crime scene. Well, the, the forearm tells me to. that there may have been some type of yeah, defensive the, wound. Defensive wound, putting their arm yeah. up to pre- to protect himself. Yeah, um, but which overall, is a natural just, instinct. Yeah. If you're if you're a hitman, you know what it takes to kill someone, and especially from that close range, especially based on the type of caliber weapon you're using, four shots is overkill. I believe Chris Senior was shot a total of nine times, and they think he was the first victim, and then his cousin Gary. Um, they they pulled the bodies into the back bedroom. Once again, the only crime scene where the bodies were moved from the location that they were killed at. So honestly, looking at the crime scenes, if you know nothing about this case, you might think that Chris Roden Sr. was the target, that he was the first person killed. He, they, that was the first crime scene the killers went to. He was shot the most and what appeared to be the most viciously. So you might think like he's the crux of this. He's the nexus. He is why these people are there. And the rest of the family is either an afterthought or just as a way to sort of send a message, as you said. But it seemed, I guess, looking from these crime scenes, would you say it kind of seemed like the father, the patriarch, Chris Roden Sr., the one who has had the grow operations on his property, the one who was shot the most, the one who was shot the most brutally, may have been the reason that they were there based on how personal his murder seemed? Yeah, on the surface, I guess that's how it looks right now. I have a feeling you're going to throw a curveball at us. But yeah, on the surface, you would think if this is somehow related to the weed, then Chris would be the main target. They go there, they take him out, but then obviously they want to take out the family members because they're either involved with this or they would they they know the the individuals who carried out this hit. It just it just seems like a lot from I keep getting stuck on the marijuana, to be honest with you. So that's but, what I was thinking when I first looked through it. I was like, it doesn't have to be a cartel. Maybe it's just another local a lo- local drug, dealer. another local grower. Yes, yes. And, if anything, and yes. maybe it wasn't even a competition thing. Maybe it was a like they got in an argument and uh, Chris Roden Sr. was like, oh, I'm going to take out your plants. And, and then they kind of retaliated. And in that case, yes, it would seem like they take out the family because they're all locals and they all know each other and everyone knows everyone. And the family would probably point the finger at that other person, that other grower, if yeah. anything was to go down. Yep. And it also, I, I also felt, because when I first started researching this case years ago, I was just, I couldn't figure it out. I was going through all the possibilities in my head. And I also thought like, maybe they also killed all of those other family members so that you couldn't figure out who the target was, you know, because it's easy if you have one person killed. All right. Who are this person's enemies? What interactions has this person had in the past weeks or months? It's going to be a lot easier to single out a motive and to single out maybe an enemy or somebody that they had negative interactions with rather than eight people, because now you've got to go through all of that with all eight people to figure out who the target was. 
So it almost makes the investigation that much harder. I'm going to reserve judgment at this point. I'm just completely flying blind here. So it just seems like it's a lot of potential red herrings, but we'll see. We'll see if it all ties together. Okay, so remember that you have a few children here who now are parentless. You have Frankie Roden and Hannah Gillies, uh, six-month-old son. You also have Hannah May Roden's four-day-old infant, infant daughter Kylie. So, which blows my mind. To have a baby and four days later be murdered while you're in bed with that baby is just so incredibly traumatic to think about. But you've got these these children and they don't really have any place to go. You know, they could go to foster care, they could go with other relatives, but they have to figure this out. They, the police can't just give these babies to family members and say, here you go, um, you're taking care of this baby now. They've got to do custody proceedings. So in August of 2016, a hearing was held to determine if these custody proceedings for these surviving children should be kept secret from the public. And uh, Pike County Sheriff Charles Reeder, he was present at the hearing and he requested that the custody disputes should be sealed from the public because he believed that there had been more than one shooter involved in the Roden family massacre. And this is the first time that law enforcement says anything that's con- like confirmed, that can be confirmed, where they're admitting that they believe there's more than one shooter. Up until that point, they had said they believed it was only one person. Now, Reader was concerned that the children could potentially be in danger from these people. And he said, quote, I believe if the information about the minor children is released, it would put the minor children or their caregivers in grave danger. I do not ever want to find victims 9, 10 and 11 and have them be those three minor children, end quote. I just want to go back and recap the children for not only myself, but anybody who's trying to keep up with this. At Frankie Roden and Hannah Gilley's house, we have... Two children left alive, three-year-old and a Mm -hmm. six-month-old, Brantley and Ruger, right? Mm -hmm. And then you said at Dana's house, there there was Dana, there's Hannah Mae, who's 19, Mm -hmm. and then there's Christopher, who's 16. Chris Jr., yep. You said one child was there, Kylie, just born. Yes. And and then how the other child, how old was the other child? So her other daughter, Sophia, was three, but Sophia was with... Her father, who is Hannah's ex-boyfriend okay. and not the father of this four-day-old baby. Okay, Kylie. that's what I was going to ask you. So this other child is not the same father as the new baby. Correct. Okay. Before we continue, let's take a break. We'll be right back. So I used to have cats. I don't have them anymore because I found out when I was pregnant with my last child that I'm allergic to them. But I love cats and I know a lot about cats. For instance, I just read the other day that their purr and the feel and the sound of it can make you feel more relaxed. And I I know a lot of stuff about cats. And one thing I know about them is they want variety in their diet just like we do. Well, this podcast is sponsored by Smalls. Smalls cat food is protein-packed recipes made with preservative-free ingredients you'd find in your fridge, and it's delivered right to your door. So make it your New Year's resolution to get your cat eating healthier with Smalls. My mom has cats, and I have been giving her the food that Smalls sends me. Actually, my mom has my cat, Rascal, that I had to give her when I was pregnant with Bella, and I found out I was allergic, and I always go over and still see Rascal. But Rascal loves Smalls, and Rascal's such a sweet cat, she wouldn't complain any 
anyways, but I know for a fact that she's so much happier with Smalls because of how fast she eats it and how excited she is to run into the kitchen every time it's served for her. Smalls was started back in 2017 by a couple of guys home cooking cat food in small batches for their friends. A few short years later, they've served millions of meals to cats around the world, including Rascal. After making the switch to Smalls, 90% of cat owners reported overall health improvements, and that's a really big deal. The team at Smalls is so confident your cat will love their product that you can try it risk-free. That means they will refund you if your cat won't eat their food. So Smalls is great. Uh, any any pets you have, you want to kind of treat them with the most love and, and care and consideration that you can. And feeding them a well-balanced, healthy diet is a great first step. And Smalls makes it super easy. Derek's going to tell you how you can check them out for yourself. It's 2024. Are you still feeding your cat kibble? Come on, head on over to smalls.com slash crimeweekly and use our promo code crimeweekly at checkout for 50% off your first order plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find and you'll have to use our code crimeweekly for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code crimeweekly for 50% off your first order plus free shipping. So a few months later, in October of 2016, Sheriff Reeder also dispelled any rumors of cartel activity, claiming it was the belief of investigators that the killers were local. Do you believe that the Mexican drug cartel is involved? Absolutely not. Can you explain why you say that? With the nature of the investigation and the things that's been revealed while conducting the investigation, there would be no indication to me as, as to any type of Mexican drug cartel being involved. What he tells me next officially puts the community on notice. You're saying that the suspects likely either live in Pike County or in the area somewhere nearby? Yes, that is my belief. 100% certainty. That's my belief. Tim Dana's dad, Leonard Manley, says he hasn't heard from the sheriff. I'm pretty uh, angry at all of them. But he also believes the killers are familiar. Whoever done this had to know the dog had to know where the security system was. Leonard tells me even he was a suspect for a time. They come back and got, got DNA from me and my grandson and them. With the focus now on locals, Attorney General Mike DeWine explains investigators have reconstructed every aspect of the victims' lives. He's worked on the case with Sheriff Reeder from the start. It sounds like you know exactly who you're looking for. I'm not going to say more than that. Uh, what I am going to say is that somebody who will be watching this today um, knows something that would be helpful to us. This was very interesting because basically having Sheriff Reader and the AG, Mike DeWine, come out and say, hey, not only like we think that the people who did this are living in your community. This is even more shocking for the people who live in, in Pike County than the thought of a Mexican cartel doing it, right? Because the thought of having one of their own in their ranks do this to eight people was terrifying, was terrifying, especially because the motive at this point has not been revealed. So they don't know. Is there just somebody out there picking people off because they've lost their mind? Could this happen again? Are the surviving children in danger? There's many, many rodent family members still living in Pike County. Are they in danger? And everyone's just stressed out about it. Yeah, but but to have a law enforcement officer come out publicly and say, hey, listen, I don't think it's cartel. I think it's local. That does mean a lot because although to this point, they're, they've been publicly saying, we're not going to tell you much. To come out and say that, it's a big risk if you're wrong. So it tells me that they have information, whether it's exculpatory or inculpatory, that 
suggests one way or the other, either the cartel isn't involved or that a local is more likely involved with the situation. I want to go back to talking about Sheriff Reader and uh, Mike DeWine, because I really liked the way they handled this investigation from the beginning. When they first gave their press conference, they were very clear. They're like, listen, I know you guys want answers. I know you want this solved quickly. Of course, we do, too. However, we more than anything want this done correctly. Sheriff Reader was talking to the papers and saying, listen, we are investigating as far as looking at it from a prosecution standpoint. We're investigating, hoping, and trying to do every single thing right so that when we give this to the DA's office, they have an airtight case. And to do that, it's going to take manpower, it's going to take resources, and it's going to take time. And I know you all don't want to be patient, and I know you want answers, but we also don't want to give away anything that could send the killers fleeing or that could give them information that they can now use, you know, to to get away with everything if they happen to be in an interview room with us. We don't want them to know. So we're going to take this slow and we're going to do it right. And people really didn't like that because this did kind of go on for a few years before any movement happened. And a lot of the time the public thought, what are they doing? Family members of the rodents thought, what are they doing? They're not doing anything. But they were. They were actively working very, very hard behind the scenes because, once again, this is a crime with eight victims. So you don't just have one victim who you have to look at where they work and who they had interactions with and who they might have arguments with and what their banking account looks like and what their financial status is, what purchases they made, where they've gone. You have eight people. You've got to do that eight times. So, of course, it's going to take longer. And I believe that it's likely When Sheriff Reeder and Mike DeWine gave those statements in October of 2016, they'd already zeroed in on their suspects. I agree with you as far as as far as Reeder and DeWine are concerned. They definitely, as you said, probably had some people that they had honed in on. But you want to make sure you get it right. You don't want to rush to judgment and push forward a prosecution where there's holes in your case and the people get off scot-free. And I also think that if they knew who the individuals were and had a, an idea of a potential motive, there wasn't a sense of urgency to rush this case because although these this individual or individuals were dangerous, they weren't necessarily a threat to the community, right? When you think think about the case itself, yes, you have multiple crime scenes, multiple victims, but they're all connected. This isn't some serial killer who's going from trailer to trailer just killing random people. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know this was a targeted attack against the rodents. So although horrific in nature, there wasn't necessarily a danger to the surrounding community and therefore Reader, DeWine, and the rest of the investigators involved in this case could take their time to dot their I's, cross their T's, find any potential exculpatory evidence, find any potential inculpatory evidence, and also give the forensics time to develop as far as sending it off to process it. You had mentioned earlier that you had boot prints. You may have potentially had DNA trace evidence. You could have had ballistics. All these things take time to process. Was there a sense of urgency in the processing based on the nature of the case? I would imagine so, but it still takes time And if you have an idea of who these individuals are or who this person is, then and you know they're not a threat to anyone else other than, I don't know, law enforcement when they try to apprehend them, then I I think they did it right. They did it right. 
I think in that situation, they'd be more worried about the people getting spooked and fleeing than they would right. about any danger they might pose, pose to, to the community, other right. community members. And w- what you'll see is they they did get stuff processed through pretty quickly. But like especially with the shoe prints, it's very cool. And we're going to talk about it more next time. And you're going to love this portion of it. But yeah. they they have a database that they compare shoe prints to. And these shoes were not found in this database. And so these agents, these special agents, had to do a lot of creative work to locate what type of shoes these were and identify them. And they eventually did do that. Yes, all of these things are going to take a long time. So I'm honestly surprised that it went as quickly as it did, considering. So as Mike DeWine said, they had to reconstruct every aspect of the victims' lives. And one of those victims was 19-year-old Hannah Mae Roden, who was a mother of two. Her oldest daughter, Sophia, had been fathered by a man named Jake Wagner. He was a member of another well-known Pike County family. The Wagner family were seen as a very tight-knit and insular group. Uh, They were homeschooled. They did everything together. They made decisions together as a unit. And they were also considered to be like the rich people in town, you know, in a town where most people are at poverty level, the Wagners, they had money. And it was all held together by their matriarch, 74-year-old Frederica Wagner. Frederica, or Freddie, as she was known locally, was best known along with her late husband for breeding and raising horses at their Flying W Farm, a sprawling ranch surrounded by hundreds of acres of land on a hill off of Camp Creek Road. Freddie had lived on this Pike County farm for the past 43 years. She was a staple in the community. She'd even taught Sunday school there for five decades. Together, Freddie and her family appeared to be among the largest landowners in Pike County, claiming a total of 1,767 acres of land that they had kind of pulled together and accumulated over the last 25 years. And this land, as well as the associated buildings on the land, were valued at just over $4 million, which, once again, in a place like Pike County, you might as well be a billionaire at that point. You've got money. So Freddie's son was George Billy Wagner. We're going to refer to George Wagner, the eldest George Wagner, as Billy because that is his middle name. It's what he goes by. It's like his nickname. And his son is also named George. So it's just going to make it easier to not get things complicated. So Freddie's son was George Billy Wagner. And he was married to a woman named Angela. And they had two sons together, George Wagner Jr. and Edward Jake Wagner. And they were all close or connected in some way to the Rodins. So 45-year-old Billy Wagner was close friends with Christopher Rodin Sr., Um, Billy's son, George, was close friends with Frankie Roden and Dana's brother, Chris Newcomb. It's her half brother, actually. He was 20 years younger than his sister, and he grew up as close as brothers with both George and Jake, who are around his same age. So when Hannah Mae Roden met Jake Wagner at the Pike County Fair in 2010, she was 13 and he was almost 18. They were introduced by mutual friend Samantha Staley, who later remembered this day, saying that Hannah like a normal 13-year-old child, was bubbly and excited to be at the fair. And she had this big white bunny and she kept trying to make Jake Wagner look at it and hold it. And I guess they hit it off because even though Jake Wagner was significantly older than Hannah, they began dating and reportedly Hannah was head over heels for Jake initially. They were together for two years before Hannah moved in with the Wagner family, where her boyfriend's mother, Angela Wagner, treated her like a daughter. 
Hannah became pregnant when she was 15, and she and Jake were planning to get married. They had even gotten tattooed wedding bands on their fingers. Their daughter, Sophia, was born in November of 2013, and that same month, Hannah posted a Facebook status that said, Got married November 23rd, 2013. When a commenter expressed shock, asking, like, when? When did this happen? Hannah responded, quote, We really aren't married, but we might as well be married, end quote. But by early 2015, it seemed that there was trouble in paradise, trouble that had most likely been brewing for quite a while. On January 24th, Hannah posted on Facebook, quote, Sometimes following your heart means losing your mind. And a month later, she posted, quote, I miss everything we do. I'm half a heart without you. By March of 2015, Hannah was posting things like, love is not complicated, people are, and a woman can't change a man because she loves him, a man changes himself because he loves her. This was the month that Hannah and Jake broke up, and according to Jake, it was because Hannah thought he worked too much and didn't have time for her. He claims they stopped living together, but they were still in a non-exclusive romantic relationship while they co-parented their daughter with the baby, Sophia, residing with one family for a month at a time. But according to many sources, the relationship was not so harmonious. Jake seemed to be very controlling, and he badly wanted Hannah back. But mostly, he and his family wanted custody of Sophia. It's interesting because I literally just asked you about this, <laughs> as far as this other, this other child, not knowing that there was all of this behind it. But doing this with you for a while feel like the amount of detail we're going into, this is going to somehow play into the story. I mean, I'm just being honest with you guys. It's There's a lot of exposition here about Jake and Hannah. And it's interesting now, knowing this portion of the story, that ironically, Sophia was not at the home when everything went down. So I'm going to be interested to hear more about their relationship after they decided to go their own way. Because as we know, when it comes to a child, uh, we just covered an entire eight-part series about Dan Markell. Exactly. I was just going to say that. It's crazy because unintentionally, this is back-to-back, but you have custody of a child again. And it it's sad because right. what, you'll, what you will find is Jake was not supposed to have Sophia. That day? He, yeah, he was not Ooh, supposed to have her that day. Okay. So he actually, he called Hannah, and we have a witness to this, because uh, she and Hannah were fishing that day, the day before the murders. And she was there when Jake called Hannah and said, hey, you know, you just gave birth, and you probably want a few days to just focus on your newborn, you know, recover from giving birth. Let me take Sophia off your hands for a little while. I'll take her for a few days so you can rest and bond with your new child and et cetera, et cetera. Sophia was supposed to be at that trailer that was day. Was supposed to be there, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, it, and this also, because we're talking about it, it could be a red herring, but I will say on the surface, considering what we've talked about so far this episode, we're a little over an hour in, talking about someone who would have a familiarity with the area would also know the family dynamic of the rodents, that would be important as well. Like understanding, like who's involved with this family? Who, who are they connected to? Where do they live? What time would they be there? Like knowing all those details, a cartel where the member, surveillance, where the surveillance cameras were located, right? Like how to disable them, like things like that. Even. Oh, interesting. I took that differently. And I think some of our viewers and listeners would, you're telling me that those cameras were moved or destroyed deliberately before this action i was thinking that just as through the passage of time the cameras that would have been there had been removed 
or destroyed because of other external factors. You're telling me. No, there's surveillance security cameras at their home, like home security systems. And whoever killed them that night either took or broke the surveillance cameras. I definitely was thinking that they had been removed or destroyed due to other circumstances leading up to it. Like we find in some cases where it's like, hey, do you have a camera system here? Well, I did. But during the last hurricane, they got busted, you know, and so they, I haven't had time to fix them yet. That's interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree with you 100%. These individuals or this person would have to know th- those details, would have to know those details. And there would either, so it's either someone who had an extreme amount of counterintelligence and did some background investigations before carrying this out, if it's a, if it's a professional hit, or it's someone, again, who's not only familiar with the area, not only familiar with the rodents, but familiar specifically with the different trailers, their locations, and the layout. Who lived of, there. Yeah. yeah. And they were moving around, too. That's also important because Hannah was moving around, so she wasn't always at um, her mother Dana's trailer. And Dana and Hannah and Chris Jr. were not always at that trailer. They had recently moved, I believe, a month or two before the murders. So once again, this is, yes, unless some random group of assailants is watching these people with like night vision goggles for months and months, they would not really be aware of their movements in the way that whoever attacked them clearly was. Yeah. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. I My questions for you would definitely go off the where we're going with this, but obviously Jake's uh, whereabouts on the day of this occurrence, we know that he quote-unquote had Sophia, but was he actually with her? That's the question. But let's save that. Let's take our last break. We'll be right back. So for those of you who are following me on my YouTube page or my social media, you'll know that I've been working on a film set for months. And what we have to do on the film set is we usually bring stuff in for craft services, snacks for the crew to eat while we're, you know, filming all day long. And I started bringing in IQ bars a couple of months ago. And now if I don't bring them in, everyone's mad at me because IQ bar protein bars are the absolute best. You can power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb grab-and-go breakfast. And can I just say, if I say something like low-carb grab-and-go, people might think, oh, that sounds horrible. They don't taste good. IQ Bars, protein bars, they taste so good. It's stunning. So you can also try their hydration mixes and their mushroom coffees and IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack includes all three. You can get seven IQ Bar flavors, four IQ Mix flavors, and four IQ Joe flavors. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping, which is a great deal. All you have to do is text weekly to 64000. So the Ultimate Sampler Pack is the best way to try all IQ Bar products and flavors. All IQ Bar products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And whether you're running a marathon or running errands, IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. And every single flavor, whether it's chocolate, sea salt, peanut butter chip, peanut butter chip is one of my favorites, wild blueberry, and more, they are absolutely delicious. IQ Mix is a zero-sugar drink mix that hydrates with electrolytes. It improves your mood with magnesium. Magnesium is super important. And it boosts clarity with lion's mane adaptogen. So I've been reaching for my 
IQ bars constantly. I reach for them in the morning. I reach for them for a midday snack because it's like 3 p.m. and I'm crashing and I don't have time to make a full meal. And I reach for them for a late night snack. You know, you get like a little bit hungry. It's like midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Sometimes you're still working, but you don't want to eat anything heavy. IQ bar comes in clutch. Every single one of their flavors, whether it's the like savory ones, like the chocolate ones or the fruity ones are so good. I love the texture and I love the way they make me feel. We love IQ bar here at Crime Weekly. You guys all know Derek's going to tell you how you can check them out for yourself. Yeah, I like to give you guys a new flavor to try every time we do an IQ bar sponsor. So this week I'm going to hit you with, and Stephanie's going to say she loves this one because she loves every single one I say, toasted coconut chip. Have you tried that one yet, Stephanie? I have not tried that one yet because I'm not a big fan of coconut because I think all coconut in most stuff that you eat tastes artificial. So I'm going to try it out now because I guarantee you that IQ Bar's coconut does not taste artificial. You're going to like it. It's really good. You guys can try it too. So refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix Sticks, and four IQ Joe Sticks. And now our special podcast listeners and viewers can get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text WEEKLY to 64000. Go get your discount. That's WEEKLY to 64000. One more time, text WEEKLY to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. There's no safe like Simply Safe. When you love someone, you protect them in the best ways you can. That's why we recommend Simply Safe Home Security. It's an advanced system that protects every inch of your home, and it's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for fast emergency response for less than a dollar a day. Derek and I have always said in, in these current times, you should definitely have a home security system of some kind. With doorbell cameras and things like that, catching so many criminals in the act, it's an investment that if you're not doing it already, you definitely should be. We love Simply Safe because it's trusted by the experts. It was named Best Home Security Systems of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. And Simply Safe offers everything you need for whole home protection. Not only do they have HD cameras for indoors and outdoors, and when I say HD, the picture on this is very sharp, very clear. It's really, really good. They also have advanced motion sensors and entry sensors to protect doors, windows, and rooms. And they have a collection of hazard sensors that are going to detect fire, flooding, and more. Simply Safe is powered by 24-7 professional monitoring. So whenever your home is threatened, trained agents spring into action for emergency dispatch and response. And the system is so easy to set up yourself without any special tools or know-how required. And if, if you think that I'm just saying that, I'm not because everything is difficult for me. And this is super, super simple, easy. I think I got it done, all of it in 15 minutes. But if you don't want to set it up yourself, that's not a problem because you can get one of Simply Safe's expert technicians to come to your house and install it for you. Plus, with their 60-day risk-free trial, if you don't love your system, you can return it for a full refund. Simply Safe even covers return shipping. So there's really no risk to trying Simply Safe out. But I believe, and I'm sure Derek will agree, there is a risk if you don't have a home security system. And we fully believe that Simply Safe is probably the best out there. Yeah, I've told you guys before, based on what I've dealt with in my past, it's not only important to have a camera system, it's important to have a reliable one. And Simply Safe has a proven track record. We stand behind them. And so if you're looking for a system right now, which if you don't have one, you should be, uh, we have a great discount for you. If you order now, you can get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring. So don't wait. Visit simplysafe.com slash crimeweekly. That's simplysafe.com 
slash crime weekly. There's no safe like Simply Safe. I just want to qualify a little bit and talk about the Wagner family and my personal opinion, what I have come to understand about them from my research. And we thought that Wendy Adelson's family was bad. The Wagner family are bizarre or were. They they did some things that I just could not explain to you. And at the end of the day, I think it was all about keeping power and keeping control, especially because they were, you know, kind of the the big people in town. But it's just very bizarre. And we're going to get into it. Essentially, what you're looking at here is Bill, Billy, Billy Wagner, who's the oldest, the father of Jake. He and Chris Roden Sr. were friends. Not only were they friends, but they also seemed to be partners in the marijuana kind of trafficking game. And Billy Wagner was a truck driver. And so it was kind of well known around the area that sometimes Chris Roden Sr. would drive with Billy Wagner in his truck and they would use this as an opportunity to sort of move, you know, marijuana around, move things around and sell things. And uh, Billy Wagner would always talk about all these schemes and things that he wanted to do. He would talk about how he was going to go to Mexico and open up a bar slash kind of brothel thing and that he and Chris Roden Sr. were going to do this together. And then another time he was talking about going to Canada and, and buying a bunch of pharmaceuticals because they're cheaper there. And then he would, you know, drive them back into the United States and then sell them for a huge profit because in the U.S. they would pay more for them than they would in Canada. Things like that. He always had schemes going. And he and Chris Roden Sr. technically seemed to be in a business of some kind together as well as being friends. So you've got a lot of connections. You've got Jake Roden, who's you know, dating Hannah Roden. Can we just talk about how weird it is, though, that a an almost 18-year-old is going to date and have sex with a 13-year-old? Can we talk about how weird that is? I think that that's already kind of throwing a, some shade on what, what sort of person this is. But Jake Roden is dating Hannah. They have a child together now. You've got Billy Wagner and Chris Roden Sr., best friends, kind of look like they're doing some illicit activities together. So there's lots of ties connecting these families. I wonder there too, could something have gone wrong with a deal or a bit like I, we had said earlier, a business thing with Billy? We'll see. We'll explore that, I'm sure. It's interesting to me because from Hannah's Facebook, which I looked through, it seems like for years and years, she was very much in love with Jake. And even after, because she broke up with him in March of 2015, even after that, for several months, a lot of her posts were very melancholy, you know, like, I miss him. And they were those little, like, pre-portion, like, pre-done quote boxes that people post, you know what I mean? It says, like, a poetry line or, or a song lyric or something, but very sad, very, like, much missing him, kind of like, I thought I knew what my future was going to look like, and now I have no idea. What did Jake really do? to make Hannah want to leave him, right? Because somebody who loves someone that much, like the way it seemed she did, like obsessed with him sort of on Facebook, she's not going to leave him or break up with him because he works too much. They have a child together. You know, she's uh, having a child with him when she's at the age of 15 and he's almost 20. And she's going to just go off on her own because he's working too much. That's definitely not why they broke up. So why did they actually break up? And why did it seem like after they broke up, Jake Wagner really wanted to reconcile and really wanted her back? And Hannah wanted nothing to do with it. Well, there's going to be a couple of reasons. And first, I have to sort of explain how Hannah became pregnant with her youngest child, the one who was four days old when when 
Hannah was murdered. So in October of 2015, Hannah started dating a new man. His name was Corey Holdren. But a week after they started seeing each other, Hannah found out that she was pregnant again with her daughter, Kylie. And obviously, this is not Corey's baby because she found out a week after they started dating. And reportedly, Hannah told Jake that this new baby was not his either. But he was having a very hard time accepting that. He kept insisting that the baby was his. After Hannah's murder, Jake Wagner claimed that there was a 50-50 chance that he was baby Kylie's father. A local paper said, quote, and there is nothing Wagner would like more, he said, fondly recalling how he pulled the tiny baby sock off her itty-bitty foot shortly after she was born on April 17th. He was checking for a hammer index toe, a Wagner family trait. He's almost sure, he said, that he saw that bend. It's the hope he holds on to these days. But if he isn't Kylie's dad, and if the courts deem another man suitable to care for her, he will step aside, at least partially. I'm not going to take her, Wagner said, but I will want mandatory visitation in order to see her regularly. He wants to ensure that she gets to know her toe-headed big sister, who loves tea parties, getting her fingernails painted, and swinging and playing on the extensive play areas Wagner has built at their house. It's a home where Wagner once hoped Hannah Roden would come back eventually, bringing Kylie. Regardless of what happens, Kylie and Sophia are, and forever will be, at least half-sisters. The girls share a bond. They lost the same mommy. They need each other, said Wagner's mom, Angela Wagner. When they get old enough to understand, they'll really need each other. End quote. As it turns out, Jake Wagner was not Kylie's biological father. That title belonged to 21-year-old Charles Gilly, who's the brother of Frankie Roden's fiance, Jesus. Hannah Gilly. I know. It's like the everyone's connected. Everyone's connected. Um, Frankie Roden's ex-girlfriend, the mother of his child, is Hannah Roden's best friend. And it also seems... Like they were cousins, too. I have to look more into this. But during the trial, the prosecutor kept talking to this woman and saying, oh, your cousin Hannah. And I was like, hold on a second, because if this girl is Hannah's cousin, doesn't that also mean she's Frankie's cousin? Yeah. But also she and Frankie had a baby together. So what's going on here? I got to clarify that. I got to clear that up. There's some jokes that can be made in there and I'm not going to make we're not going to do it. Not going to do it. I'm refraining. (laughs) But you know, but my if at. that's if that's the case, like I, I'm not exactly sure how that happened because I watched so much trial testimony. My brain was fried by the time I got there because this was on day like 14 of a 44 day trial. But yeah, something's going on there. But everyone's connected. So Hannah Roden gets pregnant by Charles Gilly, who's the brother of Hannah Gilly, who's engaged to Hannah Roden's brother, Frankie. Yep. All right. It's crazy. I'm with you. I hope now, everyone else is struggling out there to keep all these names because I have three pages of notes and you guys haven't even heard the parts that are being cut out where I'm like, pause for a second. Run this yeah. through me again, Stephanie. But anyways, we'll keep it moving. I have a lot of pages of notes and ma- mainly my my main first two pages that I have to keep out are is like a family tree with like arrows yeah. pointing to each other. And that makes it easier to visually see it. But yeah, so... Apparently, Hannah Roden told her new boyfriend, Corey, that Charlie Gilly didn't really want to be in the child's life. Apparently, Charlie had a pill addiction and he just wouldn't stop, you know, doing this. And and Hannah didn't feel like he was really appropriate to be in her child's life. And he really wasn't in the best place to to step up and do that. So they they kind of just broke up and, and that was it. Went their separate ways. 
But all of this initially was a lot for Hannah's new boyfriend, Corey, to handle. And he and Hannah kind of broke up. They took some space for a while. But not long after this, Corey saw that Hannah had been in a car accident on Facebook. So he reached out to check on her because, you know, he knew she was pregnant and he was worried about her and the baby. And so when he reached out to her, they reconnected. And Corey said at this time he was desperate for a family. He really cared about Hannah. He really liked her. And he told Hannah, listen, if Charlie Gilly steps back, then I will step up, you know, Corey said he would step in, he would take care of Hannah and raise her daughter as his own. And that's very, really sweet, actually, because Corey also appeared to have a pill problem. But according to testimony, when he knew he was going to be a father and that he was going to help Hannah raise her child, he quit. And he did what Charlie Gilly wouldn't do, which was put, you know, Hannah and this child over his own addiction. So it's very sweet. And sadly, their relationship did not last long because Hannah would be um, murdered not long after she gave birth to her child. So in December of 2015, Hannah let Jake Wagner know that she was considering moving in with her new boyfriend, Corey, who had really been there for her and accepted her. Corey was the one who had picked out Kylie's name. He was the first person who would hold her when she was born in April of 2016. But it was shortly after Hannah wrote and told Jake that she was going to be moving in with Corey that police and prosecutors claim Jake and many members of the Wagner family began making plans to end Hannah's life. And it was all over a custody dispute concerning Sophia. During one of the trials involved in this case, text messages dating back to 2013 were shown to the jury, along with the testimony of several witnesses. And all of this stuff would illustrate the lengths that Jake and his family were willing to go to in order to keep Sophia with them. And we are going to talk about this in greater detail next time. But where the evidence ended up leading, no one could have expected. In November of 2018, Pike County authorities announced the arrests of six members of the Wagner family for their involvement in the Roden family murders. George Billy Wagner, his wife Angela Wagner, their two sons, George and Jake Wagner, they were all charged with multiple counts of aggravated murder. Angela's mother, Rita Newcomb, as well as Billy's mother, Frederica Wagner, were also arrested and charged with obstructing justice and perjury. All family members pleaded not guilty, but in a shocking turn of events, Jake Wagner, the man at the center of it all, he agreed to testify against his brother and his parents in exchange for the state dropping the death penalty. So over the course of several hearings and trials, the prosecution is going to paint a picture of a family who were so close, they had basically become a criminal enterprise all on their own. A family who were so controlling and domineering, who felt they were so powerful and untouchable that they could commit and get away with a massacre of this proportion and that they would do that if it meant getting what they wanted. And that's crazy to me because, listen, Jake turned on his family. And at least in the Adelson's case, it seems like Wendy and Charlie have kind of held ranks at least and they didn't turn on each other and they're not like throwing each other under the bus. Wendy did kind of throw Charlie under the bus a little bit, but Charlie never has thrown Wendy under the bus. But Jake Wagner, he's like, let me tell you exactly what happened. I I know I'm going to spend my life in prison, but if it helps me avoid the death penalty, then I will throw every single member of my family under the bus. Am Jake. No, I first off, I didn't think we were going to I didn't think we were going there in this first episode where we're going to start to get it. But now looking at everything in totality, this does make a lot more sense to me on the surface. I'm, I'm 
you know, not knowing a ton about Jake at this point, and I'm sure we'll get into the minutia of who he is, and we got a little bit of a touch of it as far as their dynamic between him and Hannah, but I think what might have put him over the top or put the family over the top was the thought of Sophia living under a roof with another man. And that was really some, something that can drive a lot of men crazy, you know, especially when they care about their kids in a certain way where they just, it's not an option for them. But overall, taking away the reason, the why, when we think about the how, this does make a lot more sense when you talk about Billy's connection to Chris and Jake's connection to Hannah and being at those locations, the trailers, probably hundreds of times over the years and understanding the layout, the best time to do something like this, how to do it. And not only the the layout of, I'm talking the outside of the trailers, but also the interior where people would be sleeping, how they would be sleeping, what are their sleeping patterns. And they then as you the alluded dogs, to, er, right? They're the not going to get attacked by not, the dogs. Not yeah. going after them. And as you alluded to earlier, the camera systems and understanding where they are and how to dis to disable them. And also having an idea of the type of, uh, nothing against them, but the type of law enforcement officers that are, that are on that department and their lack of capabilities, maybe thinking, hey, we can do it this way. And based on, you know, again, they all know each other, you know, John, Jane and Joe on the police department, they're a bunch of morons. They're never going to put this together. Not think they're never going to suspect us. Never going to suspect family. our affluent family. You know what we've done, and we were friends with them. We were close with them. So, knowing all of that in hindsight, it's easy to kind of see how these puzzle pieces fit together mo- a lot more appropriately than the cartel angle. Which I love what you did there. You tried to throw us off the path. Because it does make sense, but when you really get into it, I didn't try. That's like the investigation threw everyone off the path initially. Right. Well, I mean, it's storytelling purposes too. You want to give all angles, and but I think just knowing drugs, I hate to say it like this, knowing drugs like I do, it's it just like two hundred two hundred plants is. I've seen honestly, we've walked into houses and I've seen families using that for personal use, like over a period of time. Of course. Yeah. So it's not like whoa. If they're selling that, like, you know, they're the kings of marijuana in the Ohio, the Pike, Piketon area. That's not what we're looking at here. And I think it's also kind of shows why they maybe felt, I guess, that everybody had to be murdered. Because if there was anybody left alive in Hannah's immediate family, her parents or her brothers, then um, they would link it back to Jake. Well, they could also battle the Wagner family for custody, right? Yeah. They, they could technically have a claim or at least partial custody to Sophia and Kylie. And it's weird to me because, listen, Hannah had been telling Jake since the get-go. There's text messages and stuff we're going to go over. This baby is not yours, the new one, right, Kylie? This is not your baby. And he's like, yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then even after he murders her, because you'll find that Jake Wagner was at these crime scenes. He took part in this. He didn't send other people to do his dirty work. He did it himself as well. After he takes part in murdering eight members of this family, including Hannah Gilly, who, by the way, had no, there was was nothing she did to these people. They just had to kill her because she was there, right? So even after Hannah wrote in his dead, 
and her family is dead. Jake's giving interviews saying like, oh, yeah, Kylie, you know, I, I, there's a 50 percent chance she's mine. He went to the hospital when she was born trying to like stake his claim. And he's like, oh, if I can't get full custody, then I'm at least going to have mandatory visitation with a child that's not even yours. So like the audacity of somebody to even think that you have any say or any entitlement or any rights to any visitation with a child that's not biologically related to you by blood in any way, shape or form that is the child of another man just because that child happens to be sisters with your child. And you're like, oh, I'm definitely going to get, you know, at least visitation, mandatory visitation. What are you talking about? It's so weird to me that this guy went into the, the papers and was saying this stuff after what he did. And I will say, in my opinion, that whole family's messed up, but he's the worst out of them. He is, I think, a sociopath, to be honest. And at the end of the day, he's the one that threw them under the bus. But the details get crazy because there's more connections and there's more stuff coming. And there's just so many twists and turns. And you're going to start to see exactly why this happened the way it did. And and the fact of the matter is how it happened and who was involved makes it all that much more worse. Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to get into. The the how, the details of it, how it was executed clearly wasn't executed that well. Um, but we'll get into it all. I'm looking forward to breaking it down. I'm looking forward to diving into the details regarding ballistics and then the forensic evidence, specifically the boot prints. We haven't discussed uh, how that process is done at length. So I think that'd be cool to talk about. One of my first robberies I ever solved was was, was with a boot print that was left on a counter. Was it the a, gas station? Of a gas station. Yeah. Didn't I tell and you that you story like, already? You were in there with like the, the powder, just like dusting everything down. Yeah. Yep. The kid had Air yeah. Force Ones on. But <laughs> but we'll talk about it next week. There was yeah. there was distinguishable marks on the bottom of his Air Force Ones that made it as if it couldn't be any other set of Air Force One. So, and that was like one of my prouder moments because I just finished uh, BCI school, background criminal investigation school. Uh, you have to take that at the University of Rhode Island to be certified as a detective. I literally was just got my fingerprint kit and I'm like, I screwed up that whole You're gas so station. Happy. I mean, I was covered. <laughs> I looked like I was working in a coal mine when I was done. <laughs> It was like great. That, that's that shot within like Zoolander where he like jumps out of the wall and he's like, surprise. And he's all like painted black. So he metal. Have you ever seen Zoolander? No. Of course I've seen Zoolander. Okay. You know, Derek he jumps Zoolander? Out. He's, Hello. <laughs> he's in the mines with him. He jumps out and scares his brother and father and he's just covered in like soot. Yeah. No, I'm not joking. I literally was like covered. No, like I'll put it, I'll give you even a better comparison. Days of Thunder. I'm going back to your boy, Tom Cruise here. When he wins the race, the Daytona 500, he takes off his goggles because I had goggles, you know, you're doing oh, it. Yeah, yeah. And he's got the, the dirt on his face. Yeah. That was me. For okay. sure. Okay. I wasn't the best fingerprinter at that point. I was still, because <laughs> now guys do it and they don't get dust on anything but what they want it to be on. But <laughs> it was your first time, man. It was my first time using it out in this, in the, and I, yeah, it was a, you know, it was a process. Uh, any other things to clean up before we wrap this one up? I don't think so. No, I, I. this is a very interesting, riveting case. We've barely scratched the surface, so I'm excited for everybody to be along for the rest of the journey, and I'm excited to hear your comments about what you think about this case so far. I'm into it. We will, get, we will see you guys next week. Everyone, like, comment, subscribe. Let us know your thoughts on the episode in the comments section below. I'm going to try not to read too many because then I'm going to give away, I, although we kind of have an overview of what happened, but uh, to kind of... Stay clear of it and 
stay from the same mindset that you guys who are listening to this are at. I'm going to try to avoid some of that. So anyways, we appreciate you being here. Everyone stay safe out there. We will see you next week. Bye.